0: There, I'm Aaron Martel and I'm Lou Figaro, and welcome to Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews, a podcast where we talk about and review a rock album of our choice. Joining us this episode, we have a returning guest co pilot and Patreon legend, Sean Ellis. Sean, welcome back to the R4 podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. Hey, great to have you, man. Good to have you back.
1: I'm gonna try to earn every bit of that goodwill. Oh, yeah.
0: So Sean chose the record for this episode, and we're going to be reviewing The Pretty Things, 1968 album, S.F. Sorrow. So Sean, what's your history with this
1: band and this album? Well, I'm going to open with something that's going to make me the most popular guy in the room. Uh, But when I was in high school in the mid-1980s and that hair metal thing started happening, I found it wanting and figuring that underground and college rock were segregated for a reason because... I mean, it would be popular if it was any good, right? So I I decided to check out this fairly recently coined classic rock genre. Midway through my freshman year, the first half of 86, I begged for and received an electric guitar, and all of that went nowhere quickly until I discovered guitar magazines. Uh, The first one I ever bought taught you how to play pinball wizard, and that set off an obsession with The Who and Tommy. So by my sophomore year, I'm reading a book that I find in my high school library, a biography of The Who by John Swenson. And in the chapters on Tommy, he briefly mentions this album called S.F. Sorrow by The Pretty Things and how it was probably technically the first rock opera, although Tommy was the first to call itself a rock opera. I'd never heard of this group before. Uh, I would later find out that they worked under pseudonyms and under one of them, Electric Banana, they recorded a song that ended up in the original Dawn of the Dead. And I'm a zombie geek, so that's, that was like something really cool for me. But for 20 years, the only thing I would know of The Pretty Things and SF Sorrow is that they existed. I couldn't find anything in the record stores, at the mall, or even any of the local shops. But then somewhere in the late 90s, I saw on the Internet that the band had reformed to perform it live at EMI Studios with David Gilmore and Arthur Brown doing guest appearances. But I missed the the webcast and I could never find a hard copy of it anywhere either. So finally, uh, in 05 or 06, I'm in a local CD shop and there's a brand new remastered on CD stereo copy of SF Sorrow. I took it home threw it in and started playing it. And I was just like, wow, I'm really familiar with a lot of this album because my first job out of high school, 88 and 89, uh, junior and senior year, I was working at a local radio station and we had this syndicated program called Flashback. Entry level in radio means you're playing the syndicated programs on the weekends. So I played a lot of Flashback and they did these montages in between segments where they just take different psychedelic songs and create this big mega mix. And they really plundered SF sorrow for a lot of their bumper music. Ever since then, I've become something of a Johnny Appleseed with this album. I'm like, you know, Hey, you like psychedelia? You like rock operas? You like concept albums? Have you heard of the pretty things SF sorrow? Nine times out of 10, I get a no, never heard of it. And, Every other time, the 10th guy's like, I've heard of it, but I've never heard it. I'm like, here, take a copy of it. Go listen to it. And uh, it, uh, it gets good responses from the people I've turned on to it, you know, uh, young and old. Uh, the most surprising one, it was this 18-year-old kid I worked with at a restaurant. And he was like, man, suggest to me something different, something I've never heard before. I'm like, well, what do you, what do you normally listen to? He's like, don't worry about that. Just give me something you think will be different. So I loaned him my copy of SF Sorrow. He came back, was like, dude, me and my friends were listening to that. We was all blazing up. I was like, well, cool. I influenced a next generation in a positive thing. Uh, to this day, it's the only album by the Pretty Things that I've owned or listened to. I've heard some other stuff. I checked them out on YouTube. They were really good at changing with the times. Like They were still together at the end of the 70s, beginning of the 80s, and they were, they were fucking going new wave. It, it was amazing to see happen. But, uh, you know, nothing that's made me go start buying their albums. SF Sorrow is still the only one I own.
0: All right. And you're waving the flag for it. That's cool.
1: It's a good album.
0: Lou?
2: I consider myself pretty versed in late 60s, early 70s rock, particularly um, British Invasion, etc. That said, I've never heard of the F- SF Sorrow or The Pretty Things. Uh, and before you asked me to do this show, not one album, not one song not one on the radio, not on TV. No friends have ever been into them or even heard of them either, not not ever. So this is the first, i I've never heard of them before and this is the first time I, I've i ever, ever had to dive into the world of The Pretty
0: Things. All right. I had actually heard of this album. I read a while ago, and I, I can't remember exactly where, I read that SF Sorrow is considered to be the first rock opera, because its release predates The Who's Tommy by a few months, I think. But that's all I knew. I'd never listened to this album or anything by The Pretty Things, for that matter. I barely knew who this group was. It's kind of like a similar story here. So Sean, when you said you wanted to review this one, I was more than a little curious, and I listened to it for the first time about two or three months ago to begin preparing for this. Now I'll give you some basic facts about this record, and you know where I got them. That's right, Wikipedia. SF Sorrow is the fourth studio album by English rock band The Pretty Things, released in December 1968 on EMI's Columbia Records. It was produced by Norman Smith and was recorded from 1967 to September 1968 at Abbey Road Studios, London, England. The album did not chart and has
1: no certifications, at least that I can find anywhere. No, nobody knows about this album. No, I mean, it, it, it was it was recorded around the same time Sergeant Pepper and Piper at the Gates of Dawn were. So you sort of understand, you know, something had to fall between the cracks and it wasn't going to be Piper or Pepper. It was in the same building, too. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I think they stole George Harrison's sitar to use on this album. <laughs> Like he left it laying in Studio A and they ran with it to Studio B, recorded and slipped it back.
0: That's awesome. And here's the band's lineup card. We have Phil May on vocals, Dick Taylor on lead guitar and vocals, Wally Waller on bass, guitar, vocals, wind instruments and piano, John Povey on organ, sitar, mellotron, percussion and vocals. Skip Allen on drums And Twink on drums and vocals Okay, let's dive into a track-by-track analysis of this album We kick off with SF Sorrow is Born Written by Phil May, Dick Taylor, and Wally Waller
3: Been too long,
0: the street it rang with the sound
3: From number three there came the cry SF Sorrow Sf sorrow is born. Sf sorrow is born. Sf sorrow.
1: Sf sorrow. Sf is born. Sean, let's have it. So we start with some acoustic guitar riffing, leading into a. It's it's a fairly simple thing he's doing with the D chord where he's. Going, uh, cycling through a suspended second, a suspended fourth, and a major third. It's something that anyone who plays guitar for more than a week learns and tries to write a song around, but these guys did it. And maybe not the greatest song ever written, but it's catchy, sets the stage for the story to follow well enough. We're introduced to Mr. and Mrs. Sorrow and their impending child, uh, whose arrival is Heralded by a chorus that's you know not just repeated, it's it's chanted and and there's a lot of uh, lot of passion into it. and when when you watch the live performance, you see that it's Wally, the bass player, who's he's really got the screechy, gravelly rock and roll voice. I'll mention more on him in a, in a bit. Uh, I like that stop and start thing they do with the song and and how you know, it's a walking bass line that they fill the gap in one minute. A fanfare of trumpets, though probably a Mellotron on the next. No one in the band is likely to win any awards for Best Rock Singer Ever, but, you know, there's there's something to the vocals on this. I want to sing along with it every time. You know, by the time the song's over, I'm singing along with it. You can tell their backing vocals are influenced by the Beatles, but they don't have that precision. There's, there's a little edge to them, a little sloppiness Dick Taylor was originally one of the uh, first founding members of the Rolling Stones, and he left before they did anything to go to art college, and somebody else talked him into forming the Pretty Things. So what research I've done into the Pretty Things, it's always like, well, they were the band that made the Rolling Stones look like the Beatles, as far as public persona, you know. Uh, They made the Rolling Stones look like good boys, (laughs) Story goes, if they had a disagreement in the car on the way to a gig, they just pull the car over, get out, have a fist fight, and then get back in the car and carry on to the gig. So you you kind of hear some of that raggedness to it. Uh, Norman Smith's production, he produced Pink Floyd's first two albums, and you can kind of tell on this, This there are a couple tracks I'll, I'll set up in a bit that uh, they almost sound like Sid Barrett solo cast-offs or something, but... And as far as an opening track goes, I I think you could do a lot worse than this one. Lou. It's a boy, Mrs. (laughs) Summer. It's a boy. Oh,
2: wait. This was first. The first thing I hear is solo Jack White. Uh, They've obviously influenced him. And it's apparent he's heard this. And it it shows in, in his solo work, too. Even some White Stripes stuff. The second thing I noticed is the similarity to the Beatles. You said it. So looking into it, they recorded in EMI's Abbey Road studio with the guy at the control for the Beatles, which Mm -hmm. is what this production reminds me of. The strummy acoustic guitars. It's very kinks. Uh, The lyrics that only someone on hallucinogenics could make head or tail of the real rubber soul feel to it. Um, And an acoustic guitar solo. How cool is that? Lots of moody blues here. Hey, man, Ah. this is pretty groovy. (laughs) Let's strap in and find out what the big deal about this kid is. Seems shortly after birth, they make him work in a misery factory, and he sounds
0: miserable. So I guess I'm going to be doing my thing, repeating what everybody's saying, because you guys covered this pretty well. Begins with that layered acoustic guitar intro, and then the main melody line is established with the acoustic guitar as the bass and drums join in on the left channel with the hand claps. The solo section features an acoustic guitar solo, like you said, Lou, and mellotron strings, and the song comes across as a blend of 60s style roots rock and psychedelic British rock, complete with additional mellotron horns, like you said, Sean, and well arranged ah backing vocals. Phil May's voice is in the mid-high range, and he sings with a clearly pronounced British accent. But the vocal melodies are solid and catchy, and as SF Sorrow is a concept album or rock opera, whatever you want to call it, all the songs are chapters of an overarching story that apparently that I read was based on a short story concept by Phil May. So I, I guess in the liner notes of the album, there are paragraphs in between the songs that kind of flesh out the story. Because if you just go strictly by the lyrics, you're going to have no idea what the fuck is happening here. <laughs> so I'm kind of, when I'm talking about the lyrical content and the story, I'm going to probably, I'm going to be using a blend of those liner notes and the lyrics themselves. So this first track tells us about Papa and Mama Sorrow coming down from the north and moving into a place called number three, where their son, Sebastian F. Sorrow is born. They, they don't, don't tell you what the F stands for. And this sets the stage for the rest of the album to come, and I'm already drawn in. The next track is Bracelets of Fingers, written by Phil May, Dick Taylor, and Wally Waller. What do you think? These
2: guys really drank the Kool-Aid, eh? (laughs) (laughs) That beginning, I mean, a little wide-eyed. It's a bit disturbing.
4: (laughs) Love, 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 (laughs) love, (laughs) love.
2: It broke out the electric guitars now and the wah-wah pedals for this one. Everyone's probably sitting on giant pillows playing sitars and things in the background. Real Ringo-type beat behind a very John Lennon-esque vocal. Uh, This is all teapots in the sky, go bye-bye stuff. I dig the talking through a fan effect that they got on the vocal with the Leslie speaker turned up on Max Cool. (laughs) That was cutting-edge stuff back then. It's a good thing I dropped that tab about an hour before I threw this on because this shit's getting (laughs) a, a little far out. I'm starting to feel a little strange. Maybe it'll help me understand the story a little better. The sparse... Info that I could find about this online tells me that this part of the story is where sorrow discovers masturbation. And to tell the truth, I don't know where the fuck they got that idea at all, because the only part I recognize that might be remotely in the ballpark would be tumbling through the leaves as I scatter the seeds on an eater down. (laughs) Now, I don't know about you, but I consider myself an authority on masturbation. And I don't know what the hell my man's up to here. Best I can tell he's ejaculating all over a duck. <laughs> Could be worse. Or someone's downfilled quilt. Either way, that's gonna be a bitch to get clean. <laughs> but again, this is the internet, you know, we're talking about here. So I may be way off.
1: Sean. So the first time the uh, first time I listened to it and the first time I got to this song. I had a moment where I understood my mother for a second, because I remember as a teenager forcing her to listen to Tommy in the cassette deck of her car. And as the who are announcing a son with the timpani rolls and everything, she she looks over at me and goes, son, what the fuck is this? (laughs) And that was my response to the love, love, love. Like, what the fuck is this? She I actually mean, said that to you. What the fuck is this? Oh yeah, my my mom, my mom was free with the language. Yes, she cussed like a sailor and probably punched like one if you pissed her off bad enough. <laughs> I never did. <laughs> uh, when when the song kicks off proper, when when we get to uh, fly to the moon and I'll get there quite soon, I'm like, oh yeah, okay. I heard this on Flashback back when I worked at the radio station. It's catchy enough, and once the tabla and sitar kick in, I can almost smell the incense and colitas. (laughs) Uh, They break out all the trippy effects, and it sounds like they may have spent a lot of time and money on a track that's about a kid discovering masturbation, uh, supposedly. I'm with Lou. I don't really see where they get that except for that one line. The rest of it, I mean— You know, I remember when I was 12, 13 years old, and I discovered infatuation for the first time. And it sounds to me like it's more about that than the the more vulgar interpretation. But I I like it as part of the album. I could just really do, and this is going to sound funny from a guy coming with my chemical history, but I could just do without all the uh, trippy, melodramatic passages around the song. Maybe if they were their own section, it would be different. and This song could just be what it is. But, you know, it was 1967. Everybody was doing acid. Yeah, baby. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah,
0: it begins with that acapella phrase singing the word love, 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 love. I guess I had to do it, too. And then it goes into a section that has a floor tom roll and the voices sound dreamy. These are a few of the things I find joy bracelets of fingers <laughs> since I was a boy. It's just, whoa, already I'm going, what the, f- whoa, what's happening here? And then we get the main body of the track with the musical backing pushed to the back and panned mostly left. The drums go into a snare roll instead of the toms while the bass plays a two note pattern and the wah wah guitar fills up the sound. And this is done to put continuous emphasis on the vocals, and the melody rises and falls. The song is in three-quarter waltz time, and the accent is heavily placed on the one beat. So back to our story. SF Sorrow is an introverted young lad who spends much of his time in his own imagination, daydreaming and having a particular obsession with the moon, keeping him safe from the harsh reality that he's joined his father working at the Misery Factory, which sucks. But he also comes into his sexual maturity, and I also read that the term, bracelets of fingers, may refer to masturbation. The solo section changes gears completely, and it goes into full-on psychedelia, complete with John Povey on sitar. The track concludes with a reprise of the opening tom roll section, and it's very disjointed. I, I hear what you're saying, Sean. But I'm still on board. I dig the vocals, and it's clear this band isn't afraid to experiment with its sound. You know, a a la the Beatles, and so far, I find it interesting as hell. The following track is She Says Good Morning, written by Phil May, Dick Taylor, Wally Waller, and Twink.
3: She's now waiting at the gate, painted by the dawn.
1: Sean, how about this one? So before I get into the song, uh, a couple notes real quick. The uh, the narration on the liner notes, that's what Arthur Brown was doing at the 98 show at the BBC. He, he would read those passages in between the songs. The other note is uh, Twink. Uh, its I, I think it's kind of ridiculous he gets any sort of songwriting credits on this album. But that was the deal he made with the band. Uh, I first became aware of Twink because he played with Sid Barrett. Uh, after he left Pink Floyd and so he's mentioned in the Floyd biographies uh, apparently they're, the Pretty Things drummer quit and Twink was available but he was like well you gotta let me play on the album and give me songwriting credits for me to join your band so on this song you may notice in, in the stereo mix you hear the snare drum twice you hear it once as part of the kit when their drummer is playing it but then you also hear it as it's the only thing Twink is contributing to the song is backing up the snare drum hits. I mean, you know, I, I understand why the band made that decision, but it, it was just crazy to me. But as for the song, this is one of my two favorite songs on the album. When when they started singing the melody, it justified the cost of the whole CD for me. Like, I was glad I paid the money just to get this song. Uh, I'm going to borrow your guys's term here. The guitar harmonies at the beginning are not particularly elaborate, but they do a nice job of clearing the palate from what's come before. And they set up a nice guitar, bass, and drum groove with a pretty killer vocal melody over it all. In the middle, we get one of those one-chord jams that are kind of a hallmark of psychedelic music, and Jeff Beck pretty much invented them with the Yardbirds. So it's even like uh, all through the British R&B thing as they were getting psychedelic. Uh, we get another one at the end with what sounds like dialogue between our hero and the newly discovered love of his life. So uh, maybe he gets to stop wearing those bracelets of fingers now.
0: <laughs>
1: Lou. That twin guitar intro
2: riff reminds me of a very early Judas Priest. The vocals give me a mid-career Beatles vibe. This one's dirtier. They've got more distortion on the guitars now. The bass is keeping interesting, backing up the simple play for the song drums I'll say it again this belongs on some album between rubber soul and revolver yeah but it's like getting little Debbie Swiss rolls when you were expecting hostess ho ho's or Drake's yodels you know I it's not to say I don't like it it's just a slightly discounted version with the big red sticker
0: on it so this brings in a little hard rock juice with that guitar money lick to open the track and it kind of turns into a hard-edged stomp with the guitar's drum and bass panned left and the snare and the guitar leads panned right. Like you were saying, Sean, that stereo mix is weird when you listen to this through headphones. And that makes a lot of sense that, that you've got the two snare songs because that was fucking with my head and I couldn't figure out what was going on exactly. That that explains a lot. Yeah. And the harmonized gang vocals are in the center. So it's all over the place in your brain when you're listening to this through headphones. That snare really cracks, and it's augmented by cymbal crashes in your left ear with each strike, you know, and the vocals have a little snarl to them. They almost spit out the lyrics. So our boy Sorrel begins a relationship with a girl next door. She's never named. She waits at the gate each day to say good morning to him on his way to work, and he wishes he could spend more time with her, but the thought of her smile keeps him going as the young couple dreams of getting married and moving away from their small town. The instrumental section picks up the tempo, and one of the guitar leads in it is super fuzzy, and this track works for me, too. I'm So far, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm I'm digging the shit out of this. The next track is Private Sorrow, written by Phil May, Dick Taylor, Wally Waller, and John Povey.
3: Heaven's rain falls upon Faces out the children who look skyward Fisting metal through the air. Scars and screams so you might know it's pure rain. Seashells whistle. Let your mind drift away. Seashells whistle. Let yourself hide away.
2: Lou, lead us off. The intro reminds me a mesh of Queen and Jethro Tull. It's got some early who in there too, maybe even some moody blues. And you said it before yard birds. It's, it's got that London swing and scene vibe, you know, kind of, Yeah. it was probably just the style of, of that time. I wish I could have experienced the London scene that produced this. Me too. It's, really seems to have permeated through the bands of England around the, the the last five years from, from and when this, this was recorded and what was, you know, influenced and what was fab. So the story goes that sorrow gets drafted and he's miserable in there too. (laughs) He can't see his girl. And he's, he has a sad, it, if you read the lyrics, it, it explains none of this. and, I'm wondering if there's just some big internet joke that I'm not part of about this band that never existed.
1: (laughs) Sean. So I really dig the, uh, the acoustic guitar part that opens this. And while I get the instrumentation and it's historical association with battles, once the flute joins in, I just want to start yelling, you are not Jethro Tull or (laughs) fucking canned heat for that matter. (laughs) it's not the worst song on the album, but for me, it's like, like Lou was saying, it's one of the more unclear ones. He seems to be joining the military, but when you get to the last verse, it almost seems like they're comparing getting married to being in a battle and having been twice divorced, I can get behind that sentiment, but it really doesn't seem to fit the mood of the story being told. Maybe the narrative paragraphs in the liner notes shed some light on that, but As a guy who spent his life reading liner notes, while they're very nice to have, your story shouldn't have to rely on text in the album cover between the songs to fully understand. I know Peter Gabriel did that a lot with Genesis, but I mean, you know, Genesis's stories like even on psychedelics, good luck making sense out of that. Uh, The reading off of Names of Dead Soldiers at the end of the song is an interesting if dark touch, but... I'm not afraid of the dark. Uh, I don't think I would have released this as a single, and I don't think it was released as a single, but it's not the weakest song on the album. It serves the purpose uh, as far as filling in a story gap, but I'm just not real sure what that story gap really is.
0: Well, and now the pretty things try to become Jethro Tull, with bassist Wally Waller also playing melodic, recorder phrase over acoustic guitar strums and arpeggios and martial style drumming with what sounds like more synth strings briefly providing psychedelic backing. May's lead vocals are breathy and there are more solid backing harmonies. These guys really do a good job with these. Well, war has been declared and the misery factory shuts down and Sorrow finds himself joining the light infantry and going off to fight in World War I. Private Sorrow ends up on the front lines and in the trenches and to deal with the horrors he's experiencing, Sorrow attempts to retreat into his little dream world as best he can, but all around him he hears and sees shells whistling through the air, observing his comrades trying to find the courage to fight, trying to walk tall even as they fall down dying. The music fades to a church-like organ passage and the announcements of the names of the fallen as the sound of marching feet continues on, and then the crowd roars to signal the end of the war. This track is very dramatic, and to me it's effective at conveying the emotion. It's almost a mini-opera in itself. This also, it was the album's first single, Sean, but it did not chart at all. Ah, okay. The following track is Balloon Burning, Written by Phil May, Dick Taylor, Wally Waller, and John Povey.
1: Sean, what do you think? I like the way this comes from Private Sorrow. Like, there's no break between the songs. I'm working on a concept album of my own, and it's not always easy to do that any kind of smoothly. And this was 1967, so it's not as smoothly as it would have been done today. But the way this song just, just kicks right up from that, you know, more quiet passage and the fuzzy guitars, but... The melody sounds like Phil May was passing out on quaaludes when he was writing it. And I'm just not entirely sure that's appropriate for a song where his girlfriend is burning to death in the winning bird disaster as she's coming to join him in the U S the chorus. I, I, I find it haunting. I don't know if it's something I'd call catchy, especially given the subject matter, but This is where everything starts to go wrong for Sebastian, and uh, this is where we really start getting into the meat of the story. And as far as some sort of tragedy that makes you feel an empathy for the protagonist, watching your beloved burn in a blimp crashing, I I mean, that's that's pretty harsh. Lou? Yeah, baby. (laughs) Psychedelic freakout,
2: man. I could see all the colored oil gel squishing in the background as the mini skirted girls and Austin Power do that hands waving thing <laughs> that you're doing the backstroke dance.
3: <laughs> nah, nah, nah,
2: nah, nah. It's pretty annoying after a while, but it it's groovy, baby. Yeah, more Kool-Aid. This has an early Grateful Dead feel in that dual guitar turnaround that they do. Um but moody blues all the way in the chorus. Yeah. Sounds like a barn burner if it ever got played out, but uh, didn't it just get faked and that was it? I think they I think they were actually playing it live in the '98 show. All right, but-, but at first they just they they try to lip sync it and um, their their sound man couldn't uh, he was tripping and he couldn't hit the tapes on time, <laughs> so they were all kind of just standing there with their dick in their hands. It was kind of sad. I would I would have been horrified too and never played it either after that. So the story, it, you know, back to the story. So his girl flies over to meet him in New York on a blimp and it explodes as he watches. This guy can't get a break, can he? I still can't tell any of this from the lyrics of the song. So at this point, I'm just ignoring the words and just digging the music, man.
1: It's cool.
0: <laughs> We're back to an up-tempo hard rocker. The rhythm section's propulsive while the guitars enter the tune on a guitar money passage and break off with the rhythm guitar going along with a chug while the lead guitar repeats kind of a siren like figure. The verse and chorus sections are separated by descending transitional passages with busy drum fills, and the solo has the two guitars playing separate leads at each channel, one with that fuzzed out tone and the other continuing the clear, piercing sound. It's, it's a mind fuck, too. The vocals are sung in that drawn-out chant style. You're a quaalude, as you were saying, (laughs) Sean. And as we return to our story, you guys already said it, Soros made it through the war, and he settles down in New York. And we join him as he waits for his girl to arrive via the dirigible Windenburg. But he's horrified and devastated when the blimp goes up in flames. It's obviously a reference to the 1937 Hindenburg disaster. I mean, yeah, couldn't you tell? Windenburg shit. This is a hard rocking track, and man, this story is no picnic so far. We are going dark, folks. The next track is Death, written by Phil May, Dick Taylor, Wally Waller, John Povey, and Twink.
3: As your loved ones, they place heavy stones on your face Your sonnets of life, they are filling the case High windows inside me, look down on your face Changing white fingers for men in the sun, burning bright spears that you
2: Lou. How about this one? This is another one. It sounds very Jack White. He really had to be a pretty things fan. The simple marching-type rhythm and the plodding bass give the washy guitars and, it's, and sitar a bed to ride on top of. Our hero is bummed out at his loss, and this is a song of grief. Boo-hoo. That thing at the end sounds like you're in a car wash if you're wearing headphones.
1: <laughs> Sean. For the first couple of seconds, I thought somehow uh, Vegetable Man by Pink Floyd had had gotten mixed up in the playlist, but uh, something about this song, once it kicks off proper, the chord progression, the melody, it reminds me of the parts of Bracelets of Fingers that don't bore me to death, and someone with a PhD in music would be better able to answer this and say whether or not I'm on the right path, but this song almost seems like a sort of inverted mirror to Bracelets of Fingers, Like, like if you played Bracelets of Fingers upside down, you'd get this song, and I don't know if it's intentional on the band's part, but it's certainly not unusual for a rock opera or a concept album to have repeating themes, variations on the themes. Maybe that's what's happening here. Uh, but given what I know about these guys, they don't strike me as, as the type of musicians who could do something like that intentionally. <laughs> but <laughs> I can't talk too harshly like, uh, like Def Leppard on the previous episode. They've sold more albums than I have, so I can't talk them too hard.
0: Not that many more. <laughs> so this is dark and moody. I get a Velvet Underground vibe to this dirge. And there are haunting, wordless backing vocals that follow the rise and fall of the musical refrain, the <laughs> The Mellotron adds a claustrophobic feel, and the sitar returns to give the song like an exotic, pessimistic edge. Our boy's Sorrow is in deep grief after the loss of his loved one. He even seems to be hallucinating. As the slow pulse of sobbing dries from the sky, my grief in red circles surrounding an eye, Grey Child stands looking and passes on by. Heavy shit, man. This track, to me, effectively communicates the emotional state of sorrow. I really dig this. So let's flip the imaginary record over and drop the imaginary needle on Baron Saturday, written by Phil May, Dick Taylor, and Wally Waller.
1: John, you like this one? This became my favorite song on the album before we even got to the chorus. And once I got to the chorus, I had this mixture of relief that it lived up to my expectations. And I just really loved how it it followed logically from from the buildup that the pre-chorus was giving it. My subconscious kind of remembers this from an episode of Flashback. It sounds like one they would have played on the show. But I, I dig the groove of the verses and that boardwalk Carney voice that that Dick Taylor he sings lead on this one and uh, that "ow, Baron Saturday" thing. It's <laughs> it's it's perfect. Uh, but what's interesting, and this is I, I don't know if they did this a lot, but uh, I love the fact that the the end of the chorus when when you get to uh, the your life was cool, good senses rule. That's not Phil May. That's Wally Waller. And so, like, for for all the infighting, there couldn't have been a whole lot of ego in this band if they were the type of band that was like, well, you know, the bass player sounds good on this line. Let him sing that. And and Dick, you you can do that voice. You you do the, you do the verses. I mean, according to the credits, Dick Taylor didn't write any part of this, but they gave him the lead vocal, presumably because his voice suited it. And you got to love that kind of ego checking in a band. There's not many that can do that. So you know, at this point in the story, we've we've got a figure from Haitian folklore stepping up to kind of take sorrow on this interior journey, which I don't know a lot about uh, Baron Samidi, whose baron saturday is is based on uh, that guy. He's some sort of lord of the underworld or something like that. So, I guess maybe he's trying to show sorrow that things could be worse or maybe things are going to be worse. But the the song, I, I mean, even when it gets into that percussion breakdown, the way it comes out of that, I can't tell if that's a guitar or a keyboard. But the dun-da-da-da, just that transition, like who does that? Who thinks of that? That's smooth as fuck. I'm not going to give any spoilers, but the Baron Saturday alone is like three quarters of my ranking on this album. And when we get to that point, Lou. Okay. The Lennon parallels
2: are evident. What was it? Oh, Baron Saturday. Who is that? So <laughs> oh, the diction, the slapback echo. It, it's exactly what George Martin did to Lennon on those albums. It really sounds like early Beatles, which is fine. It's also a vehicle for the drummer to give us a bit of solo, which sounds in headphones like at least two, maybe three different drummers happening in your fucking head. Just when you think it's over, they go back to the chorus. The story, you went through it. Baron Saturday meets Sorrow and doses him, borrows his eyes, show him the things discussed in the next song. Again, that's nowhere in the lyrics, but it's what someone on the internet thinks, so I'll go with that.
0: The drums beat a vague tribal pattern and are bolstered by shakers, cowbell, and handclaps. Wally Waller plonks away on piano and the bass follows an alternating up-and-down pattern with Mellotron horns blatting on the two-and-four beat. The lengthy breakdown section goes into full dense psychedelic voodoo drum ritual mode, and the verse vocals are delivered in that plaintive, near-spoken word cadence. That okay, that was Dick Taylor. Made sense because I knew that was a different voice, and the chorus has the gang chanting, except for "Bear and Saturday," so. Sorrow is falling into depression, and he's approached by the mysterious Baron Saturday, a figure in a black cloak and silk hat whose name is a play on Baron Samedi, a Haitian voodoo underworld god. Baron Saturday offers to take Sorrow on a trip to the underworld or his own subconscious, whatever, you know, however you feel. Your life was cool, good senses rule, throw your life away. This track has proggy elements and feels like a stitched together piece of different ideas, but I still dig what they're doing. And this was the second single from the album that did not chart. The following track is The Journey, written by Phil May, Dick Taylor, Wally Waller, and Twink.
2: Lou, your thoughts. All right. This is the Pretty Things Freak Out Jam, and it's great. Not a, a lot of endless noodling, but jammy enough to get you freaking out and dancing the noodly Snoopy dance. Remember, you're supposed to be tripping during this, too. That's how it works. That's how it all makes sense. This is the sparks or the amazing journey even of this Tommy, I guess. Uh, great tune. It's one of my favorites.
1: Sean. This sounds to me—it starts off sounding like the Pretty Things inventing Crosby, Stills, and Nash. When we get to the psychedelic freakout, it starts sampling, if we can call it that, previous songs to represent Sorrow's internal journey. I'm going to echo some of what Lou said here. The whole point of psychedelic music is to simulate an acid trip without acid. And I guess this does the trick, but for me, it's no underture. It just sounds like someone wrote half a song— And someone else said, fuck it, we'll just jam at the end.
0: This has a quickly strummed and picked acoustic guitar riff with faint conga percussion in the background and trippy effects applied to the vocals. There are also panning effects placed on the music that turns everything you're hearing into a tripped out mindfuck. Eventually, the track resets and rebuilds to the second verse and chorus before once again slipping into the psychedelic weirdness. It's really messed up to listen to in headphones. Even the guitar leads are warped and phased, and the music fits the lyrics. Sorrow goes with Baron Saturday on a journey deep inside his mind. Or is he just straight tripping? He floats with blind sparrows, rests his head on a rainbow, is selected in tiers of mirrors, and sees naked figures twisting the key. What the fuck? The destination apparently is the moon, which was once a romantic object of fascination for Sorrow, only now he sees his own face. He's the man in the moon, and Saturday drags him through the mouth and into a hall of mirrors where Sorrow sees fragments of his life reflected in them. Yep, it's Gonzo's 60s psychedelia. I'm surprised Sorrow didn't see Lucy with her diamonds when he was up in the sky with the sparrows. The next track is I See You, written by Phil May, Dick Taylor, and Wally Waller.
3: Through dark forests left my mind A light is shone It's you I find
0: Sean, let's have it.
1: So uh, another really great segue. I like how this comes out of the journey. This song, uh, again, uh, we've, we've mentioned this a lot, is this reminds me very much of early Pink Floyd, uh, you know, like, like a non-album single that fell through the cracks or maybe an outtake from one of their film soundtracks. This sounded like it could sit next to Cymbaline or Green is the Color on on more. This was another one, though, I'm, I'm, I'm lost without the uh, without the description in the liner notes or people on the internet telling me what this song's about. I like the way it builds the, the tension towards the end of the song. I had flashbacks of The Omen, but, I mean, you know, I was a child of the 70s. A lot of things give me flashbacks of The Omen that have nothing to do with any of it. <laughs> um, when you're doing something like this, a song cycle or a rock opera or a concept album, there are certain things that are called program music, and oftentimes they're largely uh, sound effects that are arranged in a specific way. But sometimes it can apply to actual music, and it's uh, another way of saying, you know, this is a song that's really just there to to propel the story. It serves its function well. Again, I don't think I would have released it as a single, but I don't think they ever considered it hit material anyway I don't want to say filler that makes it sound disposable but it's a it's a work song it's a functional song it's it's more about uh, the purpose it serves Lou
2: okay the acid's peaking at this point and there's colors dripping from my speakers and faces coming out of my palms and I've still no clue what this is about. Maybe PTSD from the war, watching one of his true loves go down on a ball of flames in some shithole in New Jersey. It starts off sounding like uh, The Darkness or Muse. That's what I'm getting, that high-lilting falsetto. It's got a medieval feel to it. Brave Sir Robin ran away It's very British. This whole record, it's hysterical. The fuck is he saying? Taking the specs respects the scene. What the f- taking the specs
1: respects the scene. What does he say? Uh, from, from what I've seen, he's saying, taking the steps, the steps to see. Oh,
3: because <laughs> uh, <laughs>
1: apparently, apparently this is where he goes to the mirror boy.
2: Mm-hmm. Go to uh, the mirror boy. don't don't do I dig the fuzzy guitars. And the crazy panning from left to right, and Leslie Speaker tremolo, this would have heavied up nicely. I heard their later stuff is much heavier. Is that true?
1: They went through a lot of different phases. They, they, you know, in the, uh, in the early seventies, when hard rock was coming up, they went a little more in the hard rock direction in the mid seventies. I mean, I'm not going to say they went disco, but they started experimenting with groove and funk and. You know, by by uh, by the end of the 80s, I think the first time they called it a day, they were definitely pointed towards new wave if they weren't already there.
2: All right. So, yeah, they were like z Ligs then.
1: I've seen uh, I I saw somebody describe uh, Golden Earring once as a band who knew exactly what they needed to sound like to have a hit in a given decade.
2: Yeah, right. I'd I'd agree with that. This is a decent song, though. This I See You.
0: Yeah. Now we slow to a mellow pace. The drums are playing a slower, syncopated pattern. The acoustic guitar strums are lengthier. The Mellotron strings provide more emotional backing. May's vocals are gentle. His melodies are in his higher register. But to make sure we don't forget, the ICU gang chorus vocals pulse and sound like they're being filtered through a Leslie speaker. We still have a fuck-ton of phased and panning effects slathered everywhere. This is like Beatles studio experimentation run amuck, taken to an absurd degree. All in service once again to the whacked-out story. So, Sorrow walks along the Hall of Mirrors and sees places and faces from his life that remind him of his deceased love until they reach a spiral staircase and Baron Saturday urges him to climb them, you guys mention that. He goes up the thousand stairs and sees two enormous windows with his dead fiancé in them, and it just basically shatters him. This trip has taken a bad turn. The following track is Well of Destiny, written by Phil May, Dick Taylor, Wally Waller, John Povey, Twink, and Norman Smith.
2: Thoughts. It sounds like Lieutenant Riley uh, from Star Trek uh, echoing through the halls of the Enterprise on the PA system from Star Trek when the whole crew got the drunk virus and flipped out. Remember that? I've left
3: your cheeks. <laughs> I watched them fade away and die.
2: <laughs> this makes me off balance on a good day. And while I was tripping, it caused me to split in two and phase in and out of dimensional space until I rematerialized as an eggplant wearing a red hoodie.
1: <laughs> Sean. I'll just get this part out of the way. This is Sean's hilariously irrelevant track. <clears throat> I have here in my notes, I fully expect this to be Aaron stinky stinker and lose obligatory skipper every album. <laughs> here's a confession. Uh, when I was preparing my notes for this, I was listening to the album on YouTube and I didn't pay any attention. I was listening to the mono mix. So the oscillating effect that sounds like it's coming through the fan that moves around when you're listening to it in stereo, it's stationary in mono. And it just sounds like your headphones are shorting the fuck out. <laughs> and I, I, that got annoying really quick. I, ma- I made a note of that. But to me, this just sounds like a bunch of tripping hippies playing with effects unsupervised. It might be better on Hallucinogenics, but it's really too short for that. Like, songs you're going to listen to on Hallucinogenics need to be about eight minutes long for you to even know they, they happened. And this is like two minutes, maybe. Um, <laughs> but, you know, at least you if, if you're paying attention and, and listening to what's going on. You know, Sorrow's doing this deep, you know, introspection sort of thing. And the sound effects, uh, they they work for that. I would have loved to have heard this live. I don't remember if they did uh, did this in the 98 show or not.
0: I would th- you have to listen to this in stereo. You need the that effect of all the weird shit going on between your e- You know, fucking with oh, your yeah.
2: ears. Because- stereo is half the fun of this yes, album. Yes,
0: yes. Mono, I I couldn't imagine listening to the mono mix of this. It would totally rob you of the effect you're supposed to get from these songs.
1: I spent a lot of time wondering why I suggested this album.
0: (laughs) (laughs) This is basically a creepy sound collage that builds in volume after an initial whispered well of destiny. There are echoed noises, phased guitar and Mellotron faded in and out until the sound swirls into a fever pitch and fades out abruptly, panning side to side as it goes. The latter notes say something like sorrow begins to search for new values. And I don't hate this. It's freaky. I like experimental whacked out shit like this, but it's also completely unnecessary. And you called it, Sean. It's easily Aaron's Stinky Stinker.
1: <laughs> called it.
0: The next track is Trust, written by Phil May, Dick Taylor, and Wally Waller.
1: Sean, hit us. Now, this might be another uh, side effect of having listened to the mono mix and it, while I was putting my notes together. But for the first, like, two or three lines of the song, I was wondering who the fuck wrapped the singer in cotton. And it, it just sounded very muffled. And, and the melody sounded very engaging. And what lyrics I could make out sounded like they could be conveying something pretty profound. But I couldn't hear them through the fucking cotton. So... You know, I look it up and I see here we have sorrow arriving at the conclusion that people are shit and can't be trusted. A conclusion I started coming to about a year before I discovered this album, when I decided to leave the strip club DJ booth after seven years and go back to waiting tables. I just wish I'd had this album 20 years before when I was still in high school and first read about it to give me that life lesson. Then I might not have gone through two divorces and a strip club tenure otherwise. Or at least I wouldn't have needed it to arrive at the conclusion. Man, people suck. So, yeah, here's a great song to listen to while you're tripping balls.
2: Lou. That's deep. (laughs) (laughs) I hear a lot of moody blues behind the Beatles a lot since I started listening to this. They all hung out in the same circles. We were talking about it before. They had to. There's a song on the newest Fish album that reminds me of this. Uh, It's called Leaves. I totally can see these guys knowing and liking this and these guys. Back to the story. Sorrow's broken. It destroyed him. He can't trust anybody. Once you're old, nobody wants you around either. And it sucks. You're bumming me out, man. You're not wrong. You're just bumming me
0: out. Holy shitballs, Batman. This comes on like a Lost Beetle outtake from Sgt. Pepper or Magical Mystery Tour. Everything from the clanging piano to the burbling bass to the jaunty pop beat and shaker percussion to the dreamy vocal melodies scream the Fab Four. The Mellotron adds background atmosphere and the guitars are there, but they act as enhancers. They serve the song instead of drive it. The lyrics, though, are considerably darker than the music would indicate. Our man Soros had it. His trip with Baron Saturday has broken him, like Lou said. He looks all around him for someone to trust, but finds no one. He sees only emptiness, and society will do away with you when your usefulness has expired. Sorrow wipes a tear and decides to retreat from everything, going behind a wall. The penultimate track is Old Man Going, written by Phil May, Dick Taylor, Wally Waller, John Povey, and Twink. off
2: you know i'm gonna do it right (laughs) ever since i was a young boy (laughs) i played the wait same riff okay but it goes in a completely different direction this is harsher and meaner as if sorrows just had it he's fucking sick of it those hand claps this whole album has been a stretch to try to piece together lyrically what this fucking guy's story is. And all jokes aside, it's fucking impossible. The only way I'm getting through this record is with sparse info that the internet provided to have like a fraction of a clue. What the fuck is going on? And I don't care because I'm too busy pounding my fucking dashboard and steering wheel playing car drums at 65 and a 25. (laughs) It's a great fucking tune. Oh, yeah. It made perfect sense on acid, too. And I wrote everything down, too, until I looked the next day and I couldn't fucking read it.
1: <laughs> Sean. Yeah, the, uh, the music really kicks ass on this track. Uh, but I'm with Lou. If it wasn't for the Internet or the paragraphs uh, in, in between the uh, song lyrics, I would have no fucking idea what this is about. Old man going going where is, is that even what that means? Is this some kind of slang old man? And, and wow, he, he got old really fucking quick. Did we jump over some shit? (laughs) I mean, granted the guys, you know, he's, he's, he's been through a lot, but how fucking long was he inside himself? Decades. It does convey a, a kind of mood, a kind of mindset, I guess. I dig the track. I just, uh, it's, it's, one of those, uh, one of the tracks on this album that's like, man, could we have spent maybe a little more time on the lyrics so you don't have to read the shit in between the lyrics? But, uh, you know, we don't know what kind of time constraints they were under, what sort of budget they had to work with or anything. Like Aaron said at the beginning, this all started from a story that Phil May wrote. So did he write the story like in a literary fashion or did he write the story and kind of all oh, right this is what happens and then this happens and then and, and, and then this is what happens but <laughs> I don't really know what the details are. but I mean you know it, it again, it does its job. It's a good song. It, it sticks with you after you you stop listening to the album and that's you know really one of the best things you can say about a piece of music. It sticks with you.
0: Wait a minute. I know that acoustic guitar faster on riff. It's Pinball Wizard, well before Pinball Wizard was (laughs) written. Did The Who rip it off? Phil May thought so. And The Who denied it. But after that intro, we get a cool, hard-rocking riff, and the rest of the track very much sounds to me like The Who, especially something like I Can See for Miles. The drums are extremely Keith Moon-esque, and their thunderous rolls around the kit, and the old-man-going refrain has a Who vibe, too. So who's ripping off Who? For, I tend to think it's all bullshit and it's like parallel writing. I mean, this is the peak period of the British Invasion Bands and they all influenced each other to some degree. That's basically my take on all this. The lead vocals are delivered super snotty and yeah, our man's about done with life, filled with bitterness. Hopscotch of life will lead you to the grave. Wet faces lie in the street, they will not be saved. Black house you've built, it will soon disappear. Another corporation dig this year. The liner notes say explicitly that Sebastian's madness built up like a surrounding wall, shutting off the light until there was just darkness. Hey, did Pink Floyd rip off the pretty things years later when they wrote The Wall? Or does every concept album have to center around a character who cuts himself off from the world? You decide. And that brings us to the final track, Loneliest Person, written by Phil May, Dick Taylor, Wally Waller, and Twink
3: be the loneliest
0: person in the world
3: you'll never be as lonely as me yes you might be the loneliest person in the world you'll never be as lonely as me oh the sky it seems dark as i'm walking through a park but the face it is too bright to see
1: How about this last one Sean So I definitely remember hearing this on flashback back in the 80s One of the things I love about this album is that it did answer several what song is this and who does it songs from my days running syndicated programs on Sunday mornings We didn't have the internet yet we didn't have cell phones or google you know you you had to know Something about the artist and title, and, and if they didn't give you that information in the program sheet, you were lost. You just had to hope you heard it on an oldie station or something. We have a simple acoustic guitar and voice track that's barely a minute and a half long. Our boy Sorrow goes full on Pink Floyd and completely isolates himself from the rest of the world, thus adding weight to my thesis that all rock operas are about narcissistic jerks who blame everyone else for their problems. Not to be unsympathetic, but, dude, get some therapy or something. It's not that bad. Yeah, and it usually reflects the writer of uh, concept albums, too. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, when you look at who writes them. (laughs) Yeah. Lou.
2: So I guess after getting comfortably numb and building his wall, he's isolated himself to the point of being the loneliest person in the world. Goodbye, cruel world. I'm leaving you today. Man, that was fucking bleak. I'm also getting a Kinks vibe, though, on this one. The finger-picked acoustic and completely dry vocal is a real stark contrast to that wet, drippy echoed effects all over everything and on the rest of the record. It adds like a bleakness of the end and the loneliness of the man. Sorrow. Sorrow. I'm uh I'm kind of bummed out now. And as the acid hasn't worn off at this point, I spent the rest of the evening shifting between sobbing and laughing uncontrollably until I was coherent enough to find my copy of Beggar's Banquet to bring me back
0: <laughs> down to earth. What a ride, man.
1: I used to call that Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs>
0: On an album as bleak as this one, it's very fitting to me that we close on a simple, folky, acoustic number with a very affecting vocal melody. Sorrow's shut off. He lives in a world of mental darkness, no matter where he is, and identifies himself as the loneliest person in the world. And that's it. A minute and a half of utter submission. There's no hope, no relief, and no catharsis. Sorrow, you poor bastard. I feel for you. Now that the track by track is done, we'll get into our final thoughts and album ratings. For you new listeners, the rating is a zero to five system with five being a favorite album of ours, all the way down to a zero, which is a lonelier person than even SF Sorrow. Sean, give us your final thoughts on
1: SF Sorrow. As a longtime aficionado of concept albums and rock operas, this is an album that loomed over my head for decades before I was able to get a copy in my hot little hands with no idea that that I'd heard much of the best of it already on Sunday mornings back in the summer of 88. I was left to imagine what it sounded like from beginning to end with no idea that it was as good as it really is. Being that I'd never heard of The Pretty Things or any of their music otherwise, I figured it had to be kind of garbage or else I'd at least have heard one of the songs. So when I finally got a copy and discovered that these guys were capable of putting good songs together, I mean, I had this all wrong. You know, of course, I hadn't heard anything about it, but you still form biases. You still have your prejudices. And when they're proven to be completely ass backwards and wrong, hopefully you you get a little spark of joy out of that there are a few bits and pieces that might've influenced Townsend. Uh, I can't think of uh, the titles and artists of other songs off the top of my head, but I've heard some stuff that was kind of in the mid regions of the top 40 and 67 and 68, that um, there was one song in particular that, that even does the da, 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 that's one of Tommy's themes and it's fucking overture. So I'm reasonably sure Townsend heard SF sorrow maybe uh, made some notes. It it might've even been, I know he credits um, their manager, Kit Lambert for uh, telling him, you know, you should, you should try to string a bigger piece together. But I think maybe Townsend listening to SF sorrow was what showed him. Oh, this is how you do that. Is it as good as Tommy? It's not as long as Tommy. So it doesn't have as much time to, to prove itself. But there are some radio worthy songs on here. There's stuff that stuck in my memory for decades before I even got to hear it. And I I give it a four just for that alone. I'd be happy to give it a five. But there are a couple of what the fuck moments that are like, yeah, no, nah, you guys could have done something differently there. Lou. I'm really surprised.
2: I've never heard a note of this before. I had to look it up to listen to here. I expected to come across a song, you know. I'd say, oh, yeah, okay, that's who these guys are. I've heard this. But track after track, it was like, no, I, I don't know this. I don't know this. Nope. Not one. Not one song. Every song sounds like something I would have liked or do like. I dig this. Is it a life-changing record for me, having heard it now? No. Would it have been back in the day? No. Tommy's better. Tommy's way better just because of the musicians on that album were better. You know, they were You can't compare the Pete Townsend to the guitarist in this band. You can't compare Entwistle or the drummer to the, the Keith Moon to the drummer in this band. It, it's not happening. But I dig it, and I'd listen to it again if somebody had it on. I'd be able to have a conversation about it then. I give it a three. It's not bad. It's not bad at all. And Sean, thanks for turning me on to it. My My pleasure, Lou. My favorite tunes are The Journey, Old Man Going, and Loneliest Person. In
0: 1967, moderately successful English blues rock band The Pretty Things, added members Wally Waller and John Povey, got signed to EMI's Columbia label, and released an experimental psychedelic rock single, Defecting Gray, that gave an indication as to the new direction the band was headed in with noted EMI producer Norman Hurricane Smith in tow. The Pretty Things entered Abbey Road Studios in November 1967 to begin work on their fourth album. In March 1968, drummer Skip Allen abruptly left the band and Twink, born John Charles Alder, took his place. The band fully experimented with the latest sound technology available at the time, including Mellotron, early tone generators, and other sound-shaping gadgets. And as the songs took shape, The Pretty Things decided to make all of the album's tracks fit together in a singular narrative, as a song cycle, or what would later be termed a rock opera. The cover was a drawing done by Phil May of a figure standing over a grave with a dirigible in the center of the sun and the sky. And when SF Sorrow was released in November 1968, EMI did little to promote it in Europe, and the album was not released in the United States until well over six months later, when Motown picked it up for their new Rare Earth label, and The Who's Tommy had been out for a couple of months. Critics slammed SF Sorrow as inferior to Tommy, and especially in the States, Tommy was considered to be the first rock opera, as most Americans didn't even know that SF Sorrow came first or even existed. In late '68, the Pretty Things attempted to perform the album on stage at the Middle Earth Club in London, but bizarrely, the show featured the band miming to backing tracks and each member played various characters of the story, including Twink, in the role of Sorrow. It was a clusterfuck. Thereafter, the band added a few songs from the album to its set list that they still play to this day, with a few one-off performances of the full album over the years. Sean mentioned that. So I believe it's much more common knowledge now that SF Sorrow predates Tommy. And I admit, I always wanted to listen to it, but I just never took the time to sit down and do it. When you said you wanted to do this album, Sean, I was like, okay, let's finally check it out and see how it goes. So I was very pleasantly surprised at how much I dug this album, even upon first listen. Lou, you said you hadn't heard this before? I think you have. I hear all of the major British bands of the time in their music. The Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the Who, the Kinks, the Small Faces, and probably a bunch more I forgot to mention. All of it, I hear it. This is a concept album, and the musical experimentation colors almost every track. But there is a bedrock of music underneath the bells and whistles that in a lot of ways makes me view this as a bridge between the late 60s psychedelic rock and early 70s roots rock that went through popular phases at the time. Now, the story is obscure and hard to follow, and even the liner notes don't paint a clear picture of what's going on lyrically, but the melodies are quite strong, and the vocals are well arranged and performed. It's a shame that this record got the shaft that it did, fucking record companies. I feel like if more people heard it at the time they were supposed to, this album would be more well-known and more highly regarded. Now to be sure, let's not get it twisted. This will never overtake Tommy in my heart. I just have way too much history with that album and the who to sway me there. And you're right, Lou. I mean, comparing the musicians, it's not even close. But Sean, I gotta thank you for choosing this album, man. I don't know when I would have gotten around to checking it out, if ever. And I'm glad we can give the record it's due on the podcast. I give SF Sorrow a three and a half. And honestly, you give me more time with it and I could see myself rating it higher. I I might even take it up to a four like you did, Sean.
1: Who knows? It definitely rewards with repeated listenings. And that sounds like I'm damning it with faint praise, but some of the best things do that. This album was part of the soundtrack of my life for the summer of 2005 and, and six, right alongside, because at, at the same time I discovered SF Sorrow, I also discovered Elephant and Get Behind Me Satan by White Stripes. Nice. So there, there was a lot of that sort of primitive garage rock music happening in my life at that moment. And this just slotted right, you know. Lou, you mentioned White Stripes several times during the course of the review. You could throw this album in between any two White Stripes album and it would fit right in. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Half the room would probably not even notice. Some smartass would go, oh, there's a bass. That's funny.
0: And from the R4 podcast, Philip Dennis Arthur May. Rest in peace. Now we'd like to thank Patreon legend Sean Ellis for coming back to the podcast and turning me on to SF Sorrow, turning us both on to SF Sorrow. And thank you so much for your Patreon support, man.
1: Hey, it's my pleasure. I, I really like this show. I still haven't caught up on all the episodes, but you guys, I, I just posted on my Facebook page. It took being invited on a podcast to make me sit through the new Def Leppard album. <laughs> just saying. <laughs> there so you go. Thanks for having me, man. I, I Hopefully uh, my my next, uh, well, hopefully every suggestion I make to you guys will light up something new for you. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. Is there anything you want to plug or promote? I'm still in the midst of things at the moment. Maybe next time I'm on the show, I'll have something uh, concrete that I can offer up. But thanks for asking. Excellent.
0: And that's going to do it for this episode. You can find this podcast on all the podcasting platforms wherever you listen to them. If you like what you hear, please subscribe or follow the podcast and leave us a review. If you'd like to contact us directly, we can be reached at RidiculousRockRecords at gmail.com or also on the Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews Facebook page, where there's a link to hear each podcast. We're also on Twitter at r 4 Aaron and Instagram under R4Podcaster. If you feel the podcast has value and would like to make a contribution to support it, please head over to Patreon and the Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews page and sign up on one of the monthly tiers. Feel free to leave all of your feedback, comments, reviews, and or suggestions at any of those places I just described. We'd love to hear from you. So for the R4 Podcast, I'm Aaron. And I'm Lou. See ya. Oh, Baron Saturday. Still not as good as you, Sean. Sorrow.
1: Sorrow. He'll show you games to play. He bends your mouth up to your ear, the words won't disappear. If it was double tracked, it would be spot on. (laughs) Absolutely.
4: The next track is death. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's dark.
3: <laughs> uh, <Death. laughs> hmm. Okay.
4: <laughs> what what could the next track possibly be? Death. <laughs> it's the balloon burning. <laughs> After the balloon burns, it's death. <laughs> okay. Smoldering girlfriend. <laughs> Like Tom Petty on Xanax. (laughs) Hey, Aaron. Yeah, do it. Oh, Baron Saturday. Now, now I I, I have to ask because this is how I figured out how to do that. Were you really just imitating Larry Blackman from Cameo? Actually, I think you did the best one of the three of us, John. I've listened to this song way more than you guys have. (laughs) (laughs) Sorrow! Maybe some who are... Maybe some who in there. Oh, my God. Punctuation, (laughs) Lewis. Punctuation. Hit that bong, brother. (laughs) That's my problem. I hear a lot of moody blues behind the Beatles. What the fuck did I put in there? behind the Beatles yeah, it is <laughs> I do I hear a lot of moody blues behind the Beatles <laughs> a <laughs> the lot moody blues behind the Beatles fucking them up the ass <laughs> yeah, that's what it is <laughs> oh it's that kind of listening party All right, yeah <laughs>